Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. Today, we have something special for the Hub community. I'm honored to be joined by award-winning journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang as part of a new bi-weekly video and podcast series on business, economics, and public policy that we're calling In Conversation with Amanda Lang. Every two weeks, we'll get together to break down the big stories that sit at the intersection between Bay Street, Main Street, and Parliament Hill. In today's first episode, we're discussing the Bank of Canada's interest rate decision, the ongoing fight against inflation, and growing signs that the economic risks point firmly in the direction of the downside. Amanda, thanks so much for joining me for this first episode. Really happy to be here, Sean. Let's start with the bank's announcement. We're speaking just after 10 a.m. on Wednesday, April 12th, and the bank has just announced that it will hold firm on its benchmark rate of 4.5% as it continues to survey the economic landscape. Are you surprised at all? At this point, Amanda, how much do you think the central bank policy around the world is balancing inflation targets with the risks of a banking crisis spurred on by the policy tightening of the past 12 months or so? I mean, not surprised, of course, because most uh, analysis pointed to the bank holding steady. And if Canada was in a vacuum, Sean, as you know, uh, that seems like the right thing to do. We've had a, a, one of the fastest rates uh, uh, rates of rate increases, pace of rate increases we've ever seen. People feel it. We know that. It just isn't showing up where it would normally show up. Um, and of course, the banks kind of has signaled it's on pause. It's going to wait to see if a recession materializes and with it, the attendant job losses. And people keep saying to me, I don't understand. The bank wants me to lose my job. Kind of. Yeah. The bank, the bank wants to see some softness here that it's not seeing. But to your point, we're not in a vacuum and you have the U.S. Federal Reserve poised to likely raise again. They certainly could raise again. And then on the other hand, you have this banking cri- mini crisis. I don't know. We can d- dig into whether we think how big a crisis it is, Sean. But we certainly had the wake up call that guess what? People who have people inside and outside banks who have gotten accustomed to one rate environment are going to actually make some mistakes as they reset their, their expectations on where their assets should be and what their risk profile is. That's what we're living through. If there's, a, I don't know about you, I'm shocked that the central banks didn't think that through a little bit more. In other words, they knew that they had laid the, the table for bad expectations, and now they were resetting them, that they didn't kind of look around and say, mm, who's going to get caught offside this better? I found that really surprising. Yeah, the, the issue of collateral damage is one that I think we're only starting to understand. I think everyone anticipated the potential effects on Main Street in the form of, as you say, household debt increases in, in terms of uh, monthly uh, carrying costs, to say nothing of potential job losses. But the fascinating thing is that at this stage, some of the biggest risks seem to be not on Main Street, but on Bay Street. Let me 
take that point up if, if that's okay with you, Amanda. This week, the IMF released its biannual World Economic Outlook, and its prognosis isn't good. It described the current global climate as, quote, quite fragile. But one line in the 206-page report really struck me. Let me put it to you. Quote, we are therefore entering a perilous phase during which economic growth remains low by historical standards and financial risks have risen, yet inflation has not yet decisively turned the corner. More than ever, policymakers will need a steady hand and clear communication. The appropriate course of action is contingent on the state of the financial system. As long as the latter remains reasonably stable as it is now, monetary policy should stay firmly focused on bringing inflation down. Unquote. Holy smokes, Amanda. (laughs) What a set of challenges facing uh, our central bankers as they navigate the immediate challenge of inflation. But as we've been discussing, some of these potential collateral risks, including those potentially manifesting themselves in our financial system. Yeah, I mean, if there's usually history judges central bankers badly, right? Because when we get a recession, we can usually blame the central bank in action. Um, delaying too long. In this case, I think the IMF report will have the, the search term, you know, what is stagflation shooting up the, the pop charts? Cause that's their, if they lie awake at night and worry about anything, as should our politicians. Our politicians kind of love inflation, right? If they're honest about it, it works for government, but stagflation, nobody loves. Um, and that is, of course, the big risk here. It, to me, it actually, I'm, I'm curious as somebody who's been inside sort of the, the inner chambers, if you will, of policy uh, sausage making, you know, why not keep raising would be the question I would ask. Um, and, and yes, of course, they want to see what happens. And we know there's been pain and the affordability question is real. And for, for Canadians who already had high household debt, this is painful. And I don't mean to, to diminish that. But at the margin here, why not go and really hammer it home and say, we're, we are out to get this. And if it means the recession is a little deeper than we thought, because to me, what the IMF is flagging is, you know, don't, don't take your foot off the pedal. And by the way, the, the, the tightening conditions coming from weak banks, that doesn't do the job. That actually just makes a recession more perilous. It doesn't actually do a central bank's job. So that, that it's sort of we're in the worst case scenario. I'm going to ju- just jump back. You know what? My favorite quote of all time. Remember when Alan Greenspan, post-credit crisis, testifying before Congress said, I thought the banks would be smarter. I thought they'd be there'd be more enlightened self-interest. I'm paraphrasing here. But it's this amazing quote where he's like, I thought they'd, you know, they'd look after themselves. I didn't think we needed to micromanage turns out you might need to micromanage. And that's uh, that's a bit of a nightmare scenario. A ton there as well, Amanda. There so many ways to respond. Let me take up your point about the challenge facing Tiff Macklem and the Bank of Canada around this question of whether to keep raising or whether merely tough words are sufficient to keep inflation on a downward trajectory. I'm not so sure. I worry a bit that you can only use tough words for so long before people start to take their foot off the brake. Let me give you one example. We have just in the past few days, a real threat from the Canada Revenue Agency's unions about a potential strike action, of course, focused on primarily on the issue of wages. If employees and employers aren't confident that the government and the central bank is indeed committed to breaking the back of inflation with perhaps more than merely tough words, the the risk is we start to see that manifesting itself in prices and wages across the economy. And that's when the only solution is to come down even harder. And so I think that will be a question put to Tiff Macklem, not just today, but in the coming weeks as well. 
at what point does he need to return to using the blunt instrument of rate hikes to ensure that this ultimately gets under control? So, you know, I'm really interested in this whole wage question, and I'd love your thoughts on it, because we do have, you know, when you look at a 20% over three-year wage increase, you think, my goodness, what is happening here? Uh, And it's easy to kind of feel critical about that if you want to go down that path. Uh, the, The flip side of that, I would say, is for way too long, people labored under uh, wage agreements that left them earning less year after year, right? That didn't keep pace with inflation um, and sort of ignored inflation. And when they had it, it was uh, it wasn't you know adjusted well. And I would say we don't quite have a real time payment system, but we're getting there. We're getting pretty close. The, the idea that you couldn't have an automatic cost of living adjustment uh, and then do away with these built in escalators seems to me the path we should be going down. And Having said that, I will also say this is not about government. Governments have spent a lot on new staff, and I'm not suggesting they spend a dime more. But in the private sector, boy, there's lots of profit to give to 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 labor, and I I, I do feel as though you know bemoaning five percent wage increases um, is is the wrong way to look at it, unless we're only cheering for the stock market. But if we're actually caring about the redistribution uh, of, of very healthy profits uh, and, and reasonably strong balance sheets in the last decade or so, I would say, you know, we can share some of that around. To your point, what's the number? Is it five percent? Is it three percent? Why don't we go back? To, why don't we why don't we use cola everywhere? Why is that not a thing? I don't understand why people don't clamor for it. Yeah, I, one of the great Parts of my job at the hub is I get to interview smart, interesting people like you. And just yesterday, Amanda, I spoke to Martin Wolf from the Financial Times, who in his new book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, he's effectively ringing alarms about the potential threats to democratic capitalism if we don't have an economy that is effectively more inclusive, as you say, is sharing the gains of the market economy more fairly between capital and labor. And so I think that is an obvious tension here as we grapple with inflation. It's a bit rich for central bankers and others to tell workers that they have to pass on wage increases in the name of the the greater good. There's another thing happening, though, which was a subject of an episode of Hub Dialogues just a couple of weeks ago, which is the secular trend towards tight labor markets. So in some ways, this isn't merely a function of workers and unions trying to recoup some of the losses that they've experienced in the past couple of years. It's a a function of supply and demand, which is going to be with us for a long, long time. You you mentioned the private sector, Amanda, and this is a a set of insights and perspectives that that you have that I, I don't and that I think our listeners would and viewers would find a ton of value in. We've been talking about central bankers. Let me uh, put another one to you, David Dodge, who, of course, led the Bank of Canada from 2001 to 2008. He recently told Bloomberg that he anticipates rates to continue to climb. And when I heard him say that, what my immediate thought was, what an extraordinary period of uncertainty for business and investors. How do they manage an economy where they don't know if rates are going up or down? They don't know if it's going to be a hard landing or a soft landing and and so on and so forth. What, what are you hearing? How are businesses, how are CEOs and other executives um, trying to navigate such a period of, of sustained uncertainty? So I do think that's actually one of the central questions, right? Because it'll help define how hard the landing is, I think, when it comes. Um, and I think businesses are not unlike a lot of households, which is when this period started, 
uh, we were caught where we sold this idea or did we just all embrace it? I don't know. But the notion was this would be a short, sharp period that we had an adjustment to go through. But if we just hung in there, the bank would take care of inflation. Rates would go up. Rates would come back. And I think we've all kind of reset, including Silicon Valley Bank and other regional banks. We've reset our view uh, that actually rates may stay up for a while, that the floor may have lifted. And in fact, that we may not have seen the peak yet. Uh, and so I think businesses, you know, just talking to a, a builder yesterday who said that uh, his input prices, the supply chain has settled down so he can actually get get what he needs, but his input prices have doubled. And so when you talk about kind of why the housing market stays strong, well, it's because it's not cheaper to build, that's for sure. Uh, and that, will that change? I don't know if that'll change. The labor piece of it, to your point, there's a long-term inflationary trend in labor markets. Um, the green transition, long, well, maybe not long-term inflationary, but short-term inflationary, price pressures of changing over to new technology, uh, higher margin technology is very real. So we have these, all these inflationary forces. I definitely, if, if David Dodge says are going higher, I believe it. Um, I've heard smart people who come out of the U.S. Federal Reserve saying, you know, higher is on the table here. And I guess the question will be, to your point, can businesses adjust? Can they continue to pass through? Are they going to start to take the hit on profit? Uh, those are all sort of the the looming questions. We haven't. We many of us keep waiting for sort of the big crack, right? Whether it's in the stock market or the housing market, something that'll just give and say, okay, you know, uncle. Uh, and you usually do have that capitulation at some point somewhere. We haven't seen it, so maybe because it doesn't happen. I don't know. I could be different this time. The most dangerous words in business or economics. Uh, but I don't know. I, I don't know what you think, but I feel as though that's still out there. And so the central banks do have this really difficult job of trying to make it happen, but not happen too soon or too suddenly or too terribly. You're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Yeah, that, I think that's exactly right. And, and the threat of all of this looming over the economy and Canadian households is, is something I thought about as I read this week's IMF report. It foresees global growth at among its lowest levels in decades. And it even anticipates a 25% probability that global growth falls this year to 2%, which would effectively mean a global recession. As you say, the post-pandemic euphoria about the potential of, a, of a, a quick recovery out of the pandemic recession seems to have been replaced by growing evidence of some pretty deep structural challenges in our economy. And I just wonder, Amanda, how attuned Canadians are to these challenges and, and threats, or are they living and to some degree, with the exception perhaps of rising uh, credit card costs and, and possibly mortgage costs, are to say nothing, I suppose, of food costs and energy costs, are they living a bit of ignorant bliss in terms of how serious some of these big structural threats are? I think in some ways, but I mean, is it ignorant? I don't know, because it will go back to the job market. Um, and 
those, I mean, obviously the big kind of raw data numbers don't always tell you the, the real story. Uh, so you have to get a bit more granular on some of this stuff. But as we all know, you know, it's not a recession if you and your neighbor both still have jobs. Um, and so the question, of course, is if the job market stays strong, uh, if people's, you know, maybe wages don't go up 20%, but if they're, if they're actually going to, for the first time in a long time, get close to the sort of, or at the rate of inflation, then you sort of start to say, well, I don't, I'm not that worried. Uh, does that, there are obviously people who say that's going to change. There isn't such a thing as a, as a job full recession. It doesn't, it's, that's not a, that's not a thing we should anticipate. Where will the job losses come? I don't, your guess is as good as mine, because right now, of course, we still have consumers that are willing to borrow even at high rates, uh, spend beyond our means, uh, continue, you know, the demand side doesn't seem to be waning. Uh, and so I, I don't know when you get the, that reality check or, or who delivers it. Um, and I will say, you know, uh, this I will put in the the spin master's camp out of government, but the oversimplification of some of these issues uh, is part of the problem, right? We don't actually expect people to understand anything complex and nuanced. And that's to our peril because people can. They do it all the time in their own lives. So we we should have these hard conversations, I think. Yeah, that I mean, if there was one takeaway of my conversation with Martin Wolf this week, it's precisely that. In fact, failing to have those conversations didn't cause those anxieties and concerns to go away. They just festered until they exploded, of course, in the form of populist politics in the US and elsewhere. So I think, you know, it kind of comes back to that IMF observation that a steady hand and clear communications is going to be as important as ever. Maybe we can spend the last couple of minutes just looking ahead to some of the other issues that we're seeing in the world of economics and public policy. I'm, I mentioned in an exchange just with you a couple of days ago that I'm following closely Bill C-11. Viewers and listeners may know, Amanda, that this is the legislation that would effectively extend the CanCon regime from traditional podcasting to the internet. So think from CTV to Netflix and, and YouTube, it's been the subject of a, a lot of controversy. Uh, the government is in something of a conflict with the Senate, actually, which has sought to make amendments that the that the House of Commons has rejected. I, I wonder, Amanda, if this is an issue where the government is underestimating the potential pushback from Canadians that that there is a kind of nostalgia embedded in the policymaking that I just don't think reflects the consumer habits and interests and needs of Canadians, particularly younger Canadians. So that's something I'm watching. Is there anything you're following right now that you think listeners and viewers ought to be paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, I, so I will say this about this story. I feel this feels to me like one of those stories that people see and they're not digging into because of the lack of control that most people feel over this. This something's going to happen and it's going to affect us. And there doesn't seem to be other than a few senators standing between us and whatever that is. Uh, and, and that's a terrible feeling, by the way. And this is important. This is really important stuff. Um, I, I think in part where people stand on this probably lines up with where they stood on CanCon to begin with. Uh, so let's just put that out there. There are the people who really firmly believe in this kind of as an ethos and people who don't. I will I'll tell you where I have kind of landed on this about my biggest concern. This is not helpful. It's not going to help people feel more in control, by the way. But uh, there's a lot of ambiguity in the bill. That's one of the chief complaints about it is that there's there's sort of a lot of in, open for interpretation. Well, who's going to interpret the CRTC, this unelected quasi 
partisan body uh, of people who I'm sure are very smart and very, and maybe that's the best people to do it because they're from the industry. I don't know. But I'm telling you, as if, if what we're worried about here is freedom of expression as a pillar of democracy, I don't want this unelected body interpreting a very vague bill for our future children to you know, decide what who gets to say what and who gets to consume what. I agree with that very much. I, I think in some ways the devil will be in the details and we won't know those details for years until we have a series of decisions that effectively kind of operationalize the government's intentions here. Um, but you raised freedom of expression. I, I just want to take that up if that's okay. One of my concerns about this debate, Amanda, is it has turned into a kind of flashpoint about regulating the internet and freedom of expression and so on. And, and I think, you know, that's been aided by partisans on both sides. Um, but I see it as almost entirely a technocratic issue. Let me explain to, to listeners and viewers. We have a CanCon regime that applies to one half of the world of modern content and doesn't apply to the other. And that asymmetric treatment is inherently unfair. It imposes costs and expectations and obligations on broadcasters in Canada who are competing with uh, streaming online streaming services that are not constrained by those government dictates. And, you know, it seems to me there's two ways to solve for the asymmetry. The first is to remove those mandates and dictates on traditional broadcasters to, in effect, free the market up. The second is to extend uh, those dictates and mandates to the internet. And the government has chosen the latter. I, I must admit, if, if, if listeners and viewers have uh, read some of my, my writings on the subject, I think it's the wrong path. But I do think in some ways the conversation would be aided by removing some of the, the rhetoric and lowering the temperature a bit and working through what is a legitimate public policy problem that everyone ought to have, every major party ought to have a view about how to solve. I just happen to think that the government's solution is wrong. And I guess uh, we'll see if the Senate agrees with me or if in the end, as you say, we're going to be moving in this direction where I, as long as I can continue to find Paw Patrol for my two-year-old. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm not, so I, I, I'm not sure I agree with you. Uh, now, there, w w there is a very long debate to be had about what CanCon should be and what it has been and whether in fact it is, it has always been a futile effort of whistling into the wind. Um, however, what I would say, and I agree, in some ways, trying to extend it to these multinational, you know, international content developers, part of the model, obviously, for a giant streamer is that they make it once and sell it hundreds of times. It's They, they do not want to have to create content in every market that they're in. And if they do, Netflix costs an awful lot for all of us. You know, we, we want to let the model stand as an innovation. It's a new thing. We all like it. Uh, however, I would say I'm, I'm comfortable with there being two different versions of this. In other words, in the same way that I want there to be a Globe and Mail and for us to figure out how to support that or, or a National Post, um, I, I also want there to be a New York Times and they're completely different and separate and they may have different business models. And I'm, I'm cool with that. And so I, I guess I would say, I don't think that the two-track system is terrible, and I wish they would actually lean more into that, find a way to say, we're going to keep saying, let's create Canadian content, even if it's bad, and even if it, nobody watches it, and if it's a bunch of beachcombers, uh, it doesn't matter. We're going to do it because it feels right. Uh, but on the other hand, we're all probably going to end up watching you know, 
American programming on these giant streamers. I think that's fine as a public policy matter. You know, it's both politically sellable, and I I feel I can feel good about that. You know, it's it's chump change compared to what we spend on a lot of silly things. Well, Amanda, this conversation has covered everything from interest rates to Paw Patrol. I think a pretty good start for our first episode. I, I want to thank you for this new partnership between you and, and the Hub Canada, which I think is just going to bring our viewers and listeners just tremendous insights into the worlds of business, economics, and public policy. I know I'm going to learn a lot. I look forward to catching up with you in a, a couple of weeks and taking on whatever issues are animating markets and policymakers and the economy then. Sounds good, Sean. Great to talk. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Amanda Lang, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a review and rating. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or visit our website at www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's podcast producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. <laughs>